Welcome to Machine Learning. Well, it's been a busy week this week, and uh, I've been really um, working hard on Flutter. And I've started a, a um, series on uh, YouTube on Flutter talking about how to do different uh, recipes. What I'm finding is a lot of questions that people have on Flutter are because they haven't really understood Google's uh, new architecture, which is business logic object components. And the business logic object component is very simple, is uh, separation of UI and business logic. Well, the problem is, is you have a lot of complexity in terms of how you do things. Um, and when you're a beginner, you, you walk into this complexity and you don't really understand it. So it's a different way of doing things. So the way the business logic component works is that you have a state and you have a event. So the interaction with the component is the events. And they can be all kinds of things. And the way they do, do the event is by subclassing an abstract class. So it's a lot like a factory model in that you have an, you start with an abstract class and you can subclass um, all your event types. And so then you can check for a incoming um, state uh, based on a class type. And that is a very powerful feature. Uh, otherwise, you would have to use innumerables. So it's better to use state or classes to do your, your um, different types or states that are going to be returned by the business logic object component because you can carry payload. And what I mean by payload is you can have a class um, <clears throat> with different attributes in it. So, for example, like when you're doing a login or authentication, it would work like this. The user inputs a username or an email and a password, and that event causes a change text event, which then call, uh, sends the event to the business logic object component. I'm going to just call it block because otherwise I'm going to get tired of saying that over and over. It sends the block code a event which is check the email or check the password make sure that it's a valid email if it's an invalid email then it could send back a state saying uh, invalid email and then in the error messages um, it could come up at real time after they've uh, as they're typing in let's say it won't check that until it's at least uh, four or five characters long, then it'll check, or maybe, what would you say? 
maybe it'll be on the text change, um, let's see, uh, on exit event or something, but it, it could uh, check the, the uh, email to see if it, it's a valid email. So you just run it through a regular expression. If it comes back with the two different states, the state is valid email or invalid email. Um, another one could be the strength of your password. So as you're typing in your password, it's, it's uh, uh, applying different rules to measure what the strength of your password is. And then it uh, is showing you a graphic in terms of um, the different states like uh, strong, weak. So it could, it could show different three, maybe four different graphics, uh, very weak, weak, strong, and very strong. So you'd have four different graphics that could be displayed in your UI based on that returning state. And then the final thing is, is once you get past the valid username or email and, and uh, password, then you could, uh, you could uh, uh, do your authentication. And so you have your provider and it uh, then uh, passes the, the username or email and the password to the endpoint. And then you could use LDAP, OAuth2, um, Active Directory to do your authentication. And then it would return back your token. Now your token um, is then passed into a state variable on the stream, block stream, and um, it could be assigned to the provider or it could uh, uh, be returned back into the UI and at that point uh, the UI could detect that a token has been received and uh, it could then cause redirection to occur. Well, you don't want to actually put the token into your UI. That doesn't make any sense. But uh, it could then uh, save the the token to local storage. It could assign it to the provider, and the provider then could uh, notify the block code state that a redirect to a new page is now possible. So you could have two states: invalid email. Uh, or password and then it could uh, have that state and then you could also have redirect to home page so at that point then it would call redirect to home page and load that widget otherwise you would have a dialog box that pops up that says invalid password username and password anyway so I'm working on that particular flutter block code um, piece and it's, and it's all fitting pretty good right now together I'm getting all my states put together I have my dialogues the way it was done before was kind of um, it worked but it, it it didn't it had a lot of the provider code exposed in the UI and that kind of bloats your code you want to keep uh, a lot of your business logic in your components and the reason I think that that's a smart move over the long run 
is that you can start to reuse these components and code reuse is going to be uh, an important feature and then you can build a package a flutter package and then you can deploy that flutter package across multiple applications so those are those are some strategies that I've been thinking of in terms of improving scalability and uh, you know, it, it's a real mystery in my mind why we haven't seen more widget technology in the Google um, arena. Now, I know that Microsoft has looked at uh, widget technology in their SSRS with their mobile application. Everything is done with a widget component. And it's... Uh, it's really, it's not as flexible as you might think with like crystal reports and things, but it is very easy to design and integrate your data. And if all you're looking at is getting your data mobily, the SSRS mobile uh, app development environment is really nice. So Microsoft has done a good job there. Now, why hasn't Microsoft implemented components in its Razor pages? That is a real mystery, why they hold on to HTML and CSS and jQuery and Bootstrap. All those technologies which require you to know a lot about the class hierarchies. And in essence, you are building these little components because that's what a component is, is it has uh, children that can be uh, embedded in it and uh, you define the, the features. For example, so like you could start with text and one of the child or one of the attributes might be style, text style, and then you can uh, define a text style object and, and set the font family and font size and font color and background color. And then uh, and then in the text, you would uh, uh, pass just uh, either a variable or, or hard code your text in. So these are just some nice features that um, are common in Flutter, but you don't see that in necessarily in Angular. You, you have these components that you can build in Angular, um, and then you incorporate them in either as directives into your HTML tags. So they're trying to build kind of a language that is semi-widget-like or component-like, but it's not a pure programming language, whereas Flutter is a pure programming language. There's no HTML. Now you can embed HTML, but you have to do it inside of a widget. There's an HTML widget that you can incorporate your HTML in, and it'll parse the HTML and render it. But you remember, this is a cross-platform application. Therefore, the, the rendering will work on any device, on a Windows desktop, on a Chrome browser, on a iOS uh, device, on an Android device. And these are just some. These are just some really great um, capabilities for Flutter, and I think that it will become more popular in time 
as developers began to see the power of object-oriented programming and especially block programming as it relates to their UI. Because what you really want is a division of or separation of concerns. So you want to have maybe a group that's working on the UI interface and designing the look and feel, the components that need to be on the interface, uh, list views, tables, uh, worksheets, slide ups, different animations that need to occur. And, and so they, they get kind of the behavior of the UI. And then you have the next team that comes in and writes the business logic object block code. And they integrate that in through using stream builders into the UI and get that functionality working. And then you could have backend developers that are working on your GraphQL or um, Web API, RESTful, or you know whatever backend processes that the uh, endpoint controllers that are going to be popular in the organization. And then you might have even developers that are working on store procedures, uh, link code, or no SQL structures. So there's a lot of variations. Oh, I actually I missed one. Beanstalk. Uh, so Elasticsearch, where you're doing set theory querying. I remember when I first started uh, programming as a young college graduate, I worked in an object-oriented database, and everything was done by sets. And you did your subquerying from sets. And it was very difficult at first to learn, but once I mastered it, um, I was really surprised at the speed it wasn't really fast and I'd been used to doing things with uh, binary trees and getting really fast performance that way and then moving to object-oriented database that seemed really slow but today with the larger servers uh, that speed is not a problem it's very fast and so you know you can you can access large amounts of data very quickly and it, it uh, um, in, in some ways, you can also get an SQL plugins that, uh, that allow you to continue to write your SQL commands uh, against the non-structured database. Well, I, I still think that SQL will be a dominant language uh, over the long run, but there are demands and there are code that's out there that's written in uh, set theory or elastic search and those that that code will have to be maintained so that it's really quite a challenge when it comes to maintaining large code bases because it's there's a, a diversity of skills that were integrated to make that functionality possible and so maintaining that code requires you to have some awareness or knowledge of how they did that. Most of it's pretty simple. You don't have to uh, learn, you know, complex syntax, but at the same time, you know, because of capability within the syntax that 
creativity oftentimes generates the complexity that makes looking at a piece of code sometimes challenging to figure out what they did. And therefore, documentation is very important. And that's true with the endpoints. Endpoints can get really busy with all the different RESTful calls. One of the things that uh, I was, I've been thinking about is when you have an uh, endpoint controller class that you define subcontroller classes to reduce your complexity. And those subcontroller classes are really nice because they can um, look like from the endpoint that you're navigating a tree. So, for example, you do API slash um, your app slash order slash two slash order details. And that would give you all your order details for that order two. Or if you said slash one, then that would give you order detail one for order two. And that could be passed directly into your link code or your elastic search. So subcontrollers are really powerful because they uh, allow you to have that intuitive front end interface to your data and you know we're getting so accustomed to fluent and and uh, pythonic coding that I think that that pythonic coding methodology will flow over into C sharp and so I'm starting to expect more things out of C sharp that I know I can do in Python I was really kind of apprehensive about Python originally and then a colleague of mine told me that Python is a very simple language and I should learn it. And then once I started to learn Python, I really liked it. I found it uh, very powerful for analyzing data. Lots of libraries and I could uh, run it really quickly. It require a compiler and it was fairly accurate. I do think that Jupyter Notes and Labs um, was a good start, but it needs to have a solid tool like uh, Visual Studio. One of the things I don't like about Visual Studio is it doesn't have this uh, cell capability that Jupyter Notes does. And I, and I don't know why Microsoft didn't build their Python with, uh, with cells so that you could run a group of uh, Python pieces of code really quickly and and see how it, you get your results. It's that speed that uh, of development that makes the Jupyter Notes so preferable. And, I, and it's just because Python, I think Microsoft has this idea of a compiler language, and so it wants you to write the whole thing and then run it. And it takes time to do that. Um, so every every segment that you have to wait to run, you know, is time lost as developers. So you want to remove those uh, delays. And they could have easily uh, changed the for Python to be more like Jupyter Notes. And they should. They should because that's a a really preferred way to write your Python code. 
Another thing that I would really like to see is IntelliSense, where I really like Microsoft's IntelliSense, where if you're missing a library or package, um, it helps you bring it in with a using statement. But one of the things that they lack in Microsoft is the NuGet integration to the development. You have to go out to your NuGet package, then you got to go find the package, and then you got to import it in, and then you got to select your version level, and then you have to go um, <coughs> uh, over to the your development environment and do your using. Those are a lot of time-consuming steps. And with AI, it should be more useful. I mean, it should be able to kind of figure it out by itself. You know, when, you, when you're using some API, it, it should have ability to look up what that API is and where the possible packages are, where it resides. And, uh, and also know the current versioning that you're looking at right now and maybe just ask you, would you like version 5? Would you prefer recommended version for this imported package is version 5, version 3, etc.? The AI could be useful in helping you with the configuration management of your software. Well, you know, it's uh, it's just an interesting world we're getting into because, again, you know, we, we spend so much time trying to figure out syntax now in a more complex world, and the AI is able to assist us with syntax. You know, why can't AI assist us with configuration? And it's understandable when you look at Microsoft's objective to build large software platforms that handle everything, data lakes, uh, machine learning, AI, and then Python, Dart, JavaScript, etc. It's a pretty big world of code that they're trying to manage and their development teams to build. And so, you know, they can't build everything for everyone. But it's, it's, it's interesting that in the world of AI that they're not utilizing more AI directly into helping programmers write code. You know, I, I remember in one company they had what they call Refactor, and Refactor did a lot of the template boilerplate coding that was really useful. And so, you know, you could set things up like your four each's or um, it might take a section of code and, and reformat it for you, make it prettier. And those are kind of things that, you know, AI could do. You know, it could, you know, organize your indentations. It can see where there's excess <coughs> syntax and maybe reduce that syntax down or, you know, uh, just help make things more readable, maybe break things into functions for you automatically. All these things that you have to know the keystrokes and, and functionality to do, why couldn't the AI assist you in doing a lot of it? just like IntelliSense does. And and that's one of those things that uh, I think that the software 
will have to get significantly more intelligent to help us through as, as the world gets more complex. Will companies move to that level of complexity immediately? I don't think so. I think that, uh, you know, if you have large development teams, you have architectures that are having to be maintained. They use lots of older technologies. And some of those older technologies are pretty good and they, they stay around for a long time. You know, instead of using GraphQL or RESTful, they're using WCF. And WCF, you know, does everything that you want. It has contracts, it has, um, uh, it, it has, you know, authentication. And so it's kind of like WCF is extension of XLS and XL, um, data definitions and your XML. And so it was kind of like a new wrapper around the XML structure. Well, XML did a lot of things for a lot of people and it's still being used um, everywhere. However, it seems easier to work with a lighter weight structure like a dictionary or nested dictionary and um, data frames. So it moves everything back into that square format that we're familiar with in databases. And, and you could think of like data frames also to be kind of like that because you can put an NPWare against the data frame. Uh, you can do complex queries, structures in a data frame. The only difference with the data frame is that it is not handle large data. Like if you had a billion rows, you wouldn't want to put a billion rows in a data frame. So you have to do all these um, get chunks and process it in that section of the data frame. So a lot of segmentation when you're working with a, a billion rows. So large, large data has not been addressed for developers. We can't just sit and process a billion rows. You know, I could process a million rows, no problem. It takes a little while, but uh, <clears throat> it doesn't take all day. I remember when I first started working with Oracle on a uh, deck. It was a Windows NT server running on a deck hardware platform. $64,000 machine, and it was impressive. But what was more impressive is that it could run Windows NT, and that Windows NT could run Oracle. So I had the Oracle beast running on that, that machine, and, and it was pretty fast. It wasn't super fast. It wasn't as fast as the mainframe. I had it was a Vax mainframe running the Oracle system, but I could all the data that I could have on there was easily handled, and I think I was processing like a couple million rows of data. And so, you know, I I had an understanding of Oracle, went and got the Oracle training, and uh, was able to to do what the the user wanted. And so that's kind of what I'm saying here with machine learning and, you know, 
when you get into pandas is it you know it's not going to give you database level capability but at the, the same time for kind of like I would say small samples of data maybe hundreds of thousands of rows not necessarily millions because I, I've, I've run it out to, I've had problems with millions of rows with uh, pandas not that it can't handle it it's just um, my machine doesn't have the resources that it needs to handle that large of a data set. But, um, you know, what do you, what do you need a million rows for? Well, maybe you need a million rows to do some uh, text summarization learning uh, or s some Keras deep learning networks or uh, maybe you need a million rows to do object recognition. Uh, so, you know, there's architectures that are going to require large scale thinking and programming. And that takes a lot of changing of the way we think and how we load the data and then how we process the data using uh, hardware. So maybe we're running NVIDIA graphics cards and we're processing large amounts of data that way. But, um, you know, I'm still looking for that recipe where there's lots of change that can occur for organizations, not just for one. I'm thinking about a lot of different organizations and, you know, how, um, how development can help, be helped by the usage of platforms services and languages and definitely AI needs to be a part of that that process because what, what AI is going to do for us is it's going to help find things faster for us just like Google helped us find information faster it's going to help us with understanding complexity and it's also going to help us understand what's important in an organization and what's interesting to focus on. Um, can it think? No, it can't think, but it definitely can help us by analytical, statistical methodologies. And those are methodologies that companies have used for a long time to help manage their systems. And so you do things by the numbers and, uh, and then you can make decisions by data and you can also build process by data. And that's, that's more challenging. And then the AI can take actions. Now that's something that I think we're a little bit like on the nervous side about is AI taking actions. But, you know, with self-driving cars, we see that AI is taking actions right now. It's making lots of decisions fairly quickly. And um, it's following algorithms. Almost like, let's say it's like a chicken. A chicken follows a certain algorithm for eating, maybe avoiding other chickens, not colliding into them. And if there's panic situations, what to do, fly up in the air, run away, etc. 
So those behaviors don't require a tremendous amount of abstract thought. Those are behaviors that are pre-programmed into the uh, animal and it's responding according to inputs that it sees. So a self-driving car is the same way. It's taking different sensor data. It's finding different edges on the road. It's finding uh, what is a uh, flat surface to travel over. So it says, okay, these are flat sections, panels ahead of me. Uh, this is safe to travel over. And uh, it's deciding what is road and what is not road. What is the edge? What is not edge? Uh, where are the where are the road markers to tell me it's safe to drive uh, in this lane and then how to differentiate one-way traffic lanes from two-way traffic lanes so I don't drive into oncoming traffic and then how to handle situations where there's no road markers or the road markers are badly worn away and then making decisions to migrate to the right or to the left. And, th and those, those are types of things that, uh, uh, that our actions are being taken by AI daily right now. And so we, we can't say that AI is not taking actions. Now, AI is taking actions. We're seeing AI take actions in manufacturing where where the uh, machine is uh, adjusting to the inputs that are coming down and we're not seeing people there packaging up boxes but instead we're seeing machines now putting objects from a, a from a container or a cell and then machines automatically wrapping a box around the contents, sealing the contents closed, putting the labels on, and then flowing them down the, the line to a pallet or to a storage area uh, for distribution or storage. So those are some features that we see already. And there'll be less, less interaction by people as things start to automate. And things will automate really quickly. I don't think they'll automate as fast as we, we said, like which would be within four years. But we're going to see significant moves and commitments towards automation in 2022. And the reason why we'll see that is we'll, we'll experience shortages. Um, and those shortages then will create opportunities. I was surprised even this weekend that there was kind of a shortage on eggs. We couldn't find any eggs in a couple of different stores. And there was a shortage on some dairy products. And we were like, "That this is impossible. I mean, did, did employees not get up that morning and put the eggs out on the shelves or you know what's happening but uh, you know that those processes that uh, are delayed either by 
truck drivers or by labor shortages have to be addressed and and so there's going to be a bigger push for automated trucks and you're going to see maybe convoys of automated machines delivering uh, products from one area to another running routes automatically and you know there may be from one control center one operator is monitoring 20 trucks maybe 100 trucks maybe a thousand trucks I don't know but there's a lot of trucks that are going to be required to have some level of automation now started to integrate into it and eventually have full auto automation to, to do the deliveries um, I've seen in dis distribution uh, areas where they're using robots now to retrieve the boxes or pallets and then they have put it onto a flat bed and then that are a conveyor like belt or rollers and then the rollers automatically place the pallet in the truck so the truck backs up the robots uh, using the software assemble all of the components that need to be put into the truck and then they do it and then the truck drives off Okay, so that's a lot of automation that's that's uh, costing money to be built, but it still is proving that automation can exist and the, the assembly line no longer needs to uh, be manually performed. So I think we're in the post-industrial revolution. You know, this idea that we need lots of labor to produce things is no longer required. But at the same time, we're in a knowledge revolution because there, there's the technology is still extremely complex. The tools don't self-configure. They don't self-write. They don't self-generate yet. And we don't trust that level of automation without uh, human design, human, human crafting. There's still a lot of crafting that's involved in writing software. And so... The theories of object-oriented, uh, the complexities of object-oriented still keep our world in a craftsmanship type of scenario. So we're looking for master craftsmen to come in and, and uh, run our organizations, set up our architectures, build our pipelines, and then maintain them through large number of teams and I think you know a lot a lot of some of the outsourcing is has made profits off of that model where they've uh, taken existing software refactored the software or built the software and made possible a global enterprise okay so that that's a really great capability and so a lot of companies have become global because of their software capability uh, to be able to manage business globally. So the next step will be how to generate software enterprise that is capable of running across all the company's functionality and having been generated by AI.
So the first generation of ERPs that are built completely by e e AI will start to become a game changer. So instead of having you know an Oracle only ERP or a Microsoft ERP or a NetSuite ERP only, maybe there'll be a proliferation. Maybe there'll be thousands and thousands of ERPs built but maybe it's based on the data that the AI learns from the existing ERP and then it writes its own ERP, customizable to that uh, business. And that, that becomes an interesting proposition. Therefore, you no longer need to pay to the larger company for licensing of the ERPs. You just have the, you pay for the ER, AI capability to you know do 15,000 hours worth of programming in a matter of days and so uh, yeah I don't think we really can anticipate the impact of AI uh, on our world yet but we know that it's coming that uh, once machines are capable of writing code that uh, can absorb behavior and functionality, then uh, the cost of craftsmanship is going to drop like to nothing. And so then the race would uh, be towards hardware. But, you know, will it happen? And will companies allow the uh, generalized intelligence of AI to become possible? And uh, you know, there's so much fear around that that uh, it's questionable whether or not that, that AI will ever move outside of narrow AI to more generalized AI. You know, but, uh, but generalized AI does have its place because you can see the, the potential for um, um, improving efficiency increasing productivity and transforming how we do things. So as we move towards the more knowledge base, more theories, more thinking, more abstraction, more modeling, more visualization, it's, it's just um, our world is uh, becoming more like a flight controller um, platform where we're, we're dealing with uh, lots of complexity that way. All right, well, I've talked a lot about generalized AI today, but, you know, I, I, I see more of a possibility with generalized AI in helping us understand the world around us. So uh, until next week, happy coding, and take a look at Flutter and... Uh, and think about uh, widget programming and so forth.